Drive All Night is supported by listeners like you. To find out how you can help, please visit patreon.com slash songsoftoriamus. There you'll learn what exciting rewards we're offering for your support. Again, that's patreon.com slash songsoftoriamus to help us continue to make high quality and Torytainment for you. I was just tired of beating myself up all the time. We as people are pretty hard on ourselves. Lots of self-loathing. You know, you take the knife and you just put it in harder. So hard on ourselves. Why couldn't I have been this? Why couldn't I have done this? Why can't I be her? Why, why am I me? You want to be everybody else but you. Why? I mean, this is, this, is, this is who I am. So at a certain point, if I'm going to have any kind of um, joy in my life, I've got to make peace with this. Hey, everybody. You're listening to Drive All Night, the songs of Tori Amos. We are your hosts. I'm Efren Schoenier. And I'm David Anderson. And on today's episode, we're talking about Flying Dutchman, a B-side from Tori's first album, Little Earthquakes. How's it going? It's going well. How are you doing? I'm pretty good. I want to ask you a question. Okay. You know how we've talked numerous times about what was Little Earthquakes called before she wrote Little Earthquakes? Mm -hmm. Do you think Little Earthquakes would have been called Flying Dutchman? Tori Amos, Flying Dutchman. It just wouldn't make any sense. I would not be satisfied with that. It does not at all sort of encapsulate what the album is or is about. What? First of all, I have there's like 40 things to address in that one thing you just said. Yep. My sentences are dance, just like Tori's lyrics. Let's get into it. Let's do a line by line. <laughs> Let me unpack this sentence. Number one, you think that this song doesn't encapsulate what the whole album is? You don't think she's taking a trip on a rocket ship, baby? She became a superstar. That's all. I don't. Okay. Okay. Well, I also I think I suffered in translation, but that's okay. It's like you were speaking Dutch, and I was like, what language? You're speaking Dutch, and I'm speaking Dutchman, so Mm -hmm. we cannot understand each other. Mm -mm. Wait, so you don't like the song then, is what I'm gathering? Yeah, that's exactly what I said. Thank you. So you hate the song, is what I'm hearing? I hate it. You hate the song, is is the story I'm rolling with? If I'd bought Little Earthquakes, and it was called Flying Dutchman, and I listened to it, and I heard Flying Dutchman, I would have just thrown it out. Exactly. And I wouldn't be here now. (laughs) No, I just, to me, this feels like someone else's story. And it kind of is. And also, like, just like the title, Flying, the title, thank you, Flying Dutchman. Title. It just doesn't gel with the album. It just wouldn't make sense to me. I would go for, like, Tori Amos, girl, Tori Amos, silent all these years. Basically anything but Flying Dutchman. What if it was called Tori Amos, Dutch Woman? Dutch Woman? I could get into that. (laughs) 
You have to say it like that, though. <laughs> what if the song was called Flying Dutchman, but the album was called Flying Dutch Woman? Would you buy it? Yeah, probably. I think this is her story, even though it's not her story. This is obviously not her story, and we're going to get into all of that. We have very exciting things lined up for this episode. But she's talking about hitting the sky that people don't understand her and coming into her own. That's how I take the song, that even though she says keep the boy spinning in their own little world, it's her at the conservatory spinning in their own little world. That's how I take it. They can't see what she's meant to be. They just want her to be a concert pianist. Yeah, and maybe we just know too much like about how the song was born, and maybe we know yeah. too much. I can't separate the art from the origin. <laughs> Definitely not from the artist, but... That's actually a good teaser for our show. Maybe we just know too much. Tune in. We know too much, and now so can you. Yeah, <laughs> listen to the next three hours, and you can too. You can't unknow it. Oh, we can't ever unknow it. It's sad, but true. I mean, I would never want to unknow it. Yeah. Can we just go back to the album title conversation? Again, I think this is a question... We we could actually get the answer to. We can ask her. Yeah, you mean at a meet and greet? Yeah. What was the album going to be called before you wrote The only thing is, I think we're going to build this up and she's not going to remember. Well, no, no, no. I think we have our answer and I think I'm sort of purposely overlooking our answer. So the reason we're even having this conversation particularly is because there is a promo cassette where Flying Dutchman appears at the end of the album. It's the last song on the album and Little Earthquakes has moved to the end of side A after Happy Phantom. So that's why I brought that up. For those who don't know, there is that promo cassette out there and that proves that Flying Flying Dutchman was the last song kicked off the album. You know, whatever. But that promo cassette also doesn't say Tori Amos Flying Dutchman. It just says Tori Amos. So I wonder if the album was always just going to be self-titled. Mm-hmm. Like, this is Tori Amos. Like, that's my best guess at an honest answer. But I sure like guessing other things. Me too. Like, uh, what if it were called Comic Book Tattoo? Ooh, that's a good title. That's not terrible. Milky Way Dressed in Black. No, it's too long. Although not if you ask Fiona Apple. Yeah. <laughs> Tori Amos alligator boots. In the style of Fiona Apple. What if it was called Tori Amos? Hey kid, I got a ride for you. They say your brain is a comic book tattoo and you'll never be anything. What will you do with your life? Oh, that's all you hear from you till night. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> it would still be shorter than when the pawn hits the conflict. He thinks like a king. I could do that whole album. I don't have the time. I could do that whole title. Okay, well, I won't ask you to. Can you do the whole title? If you could do the whole title, we could do it together. I can't, but I'm going to learn it so we can perform it at some point. Oh my God. At our live show? Yeah. So people know that we're not just reading it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. When the tour happens, we're going on the road, or at least I know for sure I'm going on the road the whole time. But when we get to LA, we'll do a live show. I think that should happen. I can't wait. Yeah. We'll invite people into the Drive All Night Studios. Everyone look forward to that, our first live show where we perform a Fiona Apple song on our Tori Amos podcast. No, it's not even a song. Where we perform a Fiona Apple album title. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, and it's going to be Tidal, her debut. And now we're performing a Fiona Apple title, Tidal. Mm. Anyway, how have you been? I've been well. I'm ready to travel. I'm ready to take this trip on a rocket ship or maybe to book passage on the SS Flying Dutchman. Just don't put me in steerage. (laughs) I want to be in first class. I first thought you said, don't put me in spirit, like spirit airlines. No, well, don't do that either. Yeah, don't do that. I miss Virgin, Virgin Atlantic. That, that was, was my, my go-to airline. airline. I yeah. never flew anything it, else if I could. What I'm like a brand ambassador, but I loved it. I was seriously sad when they were bought out. Yeah, me too. And like, they smelled like sweet, sweet cookies all the time. Mm-hmm. And... And they would give you free wine, and it didn't matter if you were an international or, like, every time I flew it, they gave me free wine. 
Yeah, I really I felt it. like their brand identity was so compatible with who I am as a person. <laughs> yeah, I love cookies and wine. A free wine, cookies. I smell like cookies and I'm a virgin. <laughs> oh, I don't know about that. But <laughs> at least you like cookies. I know that for sure. I definitely like because cookies. Because who doesn't? Never met a cookie I didn't like. I have. Although, speaking of cookies, let's talk about your mother's cookie party. This, this okay. seems like the perfect time. <laughs> Does it? Any word yet on whether that's happening? I am really pushing for it and it's looking more and more likely. I spoke to her two days ago and brought it up and we're sort of brainstorming options for this world that we now live in but don't give up hope cookie party 2021 and the tori michael stipe duet could both show up unexpectedly you never know she needs the cash not tori your mom yeah she does need the cash she's gonna start charging for her parties now okay well i'll be there except in the event that tori misses touring at that time in which case Oh my, you know that's going to happen. You're going to spend all this time and my mom is basically going to get talked into doing it just for you and then you're not going to come. Well, only because what if Tori's touring in December? Too bad. Too bad. What would you do if tomorrow you found out for sure the cookie party was happening and Tori's tour was still up in a question mark? Would you book the date and be like, sorry, Amos, no matter where you are this day, unavailable? Or would you abandon my mother? I would unfortunately have to tour because likely the night before whatever date your mom's cookie party is, I'll be so far away. What will I do? Fly in? Fly out? Let's pray to God that your mom's cookie party is on a night off. You're a flying Dutchman. And like what? Like flying in and out of a city within 24 hours would be unheard of for us? Get over it. Well, that's true. That's a good point. But for a cookie party, I okay, if it's a night off, I'll fly in and out. If it's first of all, we don't even know if she's touring. But if she is touring in December, and so you just have to make plans. You have to have a plan A, a plan B, a plan C. If it's a night off, I'll go to the cookie party. If it's a night on, your mom can come to the show. What if we just invite Tori to the cookie party now so she doesn't book a concert date that night? Yeah. She's like, I'm busy. <laughs> Let's tweet it to her. Okay. I'm sure she's handling her social media. Yeah, she is. She was the one who was just uploading all those to Venus and Pack videos. And people are like, what? Yeah. What's happening? It's like nothing. She's, she's just, just bored. getting excited for the Venus and Back season of Drive All Night. That That's too. Yes. On this episode, we're very excited because we have a chat with the wonderful Rance Hosley, who I would say acted as the muse for this song. What do you say? Mm-hmm. He sure did. He's a muse unto himself. She basically called Rance and was like, I need a song what do you got and he sang it to her note for note mm-hmm. including the piano he was like are you writing this down getting this amos yeah of course we need to take a moment to say thank you to our wonderful archivist historian dutch mistress shay stymac Dutch woman take a trip on a rocket shape where the shay is the sky where the shay is the sky <laughs> Shay tried that one heart falling fast when Shay left. Even the Milky Shay was Even the Milky Shay was dressed in black. Oh. Uh, Thanks, Shay, for everything that you do. We adore you. We love you. Thanks, Thank Shay. Should we get on with it? Let's get on with it. This is a cover of Flying Dutchman by one of my favorite string quartets named after Essentials. This is the Vitamin String Quartet and their cover of Flying Dutchman. Mm. Enjoy.
It's time for your ghost story of the morning on your radio, 1029 CHTM. The Flying Dutchman is a legendary cursed ship that was doomed to travel around the Cape of Good Hope in South Africa for all eternity. In 1641, when a Dutch ship sank off the coast of the Cape of Good Hope, the captain van der Decken failed to notice the dark clouds looming. And only when he heard the lookout scream out in terror did he realize they had sailed straight into a fierce storm. The captain and his crew battled for hours to get out of the storm, and just when it looked like they would make it, they heard a sickening crunch. And the ship began to sink. As the ship plunged downwards, Captain Vanderdecken screamed out a curse. I'll round this cape even if I have to keep sailing until the end of time. So, even today, whenever a storm brews off of the Cape of Good Hope, if you look into the eye of the storm, you'll be able to see the ship and its captain, the Flying Dutchman. The legend goes that whoever sees the ship will soon suffer as the captain and his crew did long ago. Flying Dutchman appears on the following physical media. It first appears, it first rears its beautiful little head on the China CD, cassette, and 12-inch vinyl single from UK, France, and Germany in January of 1992. It's a B-side on China. What do you think? I remember hearing this for the first time when I bought China, and I didn't know that it had originally been up for inclusion on the album. And even at that young and tender age, I was like, this album, this artist, there is production value here. This B-side is like six (laughs) plus minutes long and has a full orchestra. Get it, Tori. Yeah. That's rare. I mean, obviously, why do you think this song got kicked off the album? I have a theory, but I would love to hear from you. I think because of length. And kind of like we said, I think they were really crafting this album. In fact, we know that they were. And I just think, I don't think it fits. I don't. I think all the decisions they made were right, for sure. That would have been three, like, really epic, lengthy songs reaching almost seven minutes. Obviously, we ended up with an album that is iconic. It is just everything. Little Earthquakes is perfect from beginning to end. And I agree with you. The reason that they kicked, I think they kicked it off is because of the length, particularly on the vinyl. You only have so much room on a vinyl. So maybe that had something to do with it. I mean, obviously it was like that, but also like you're right, it, it, it's a beautiful song with incredible production value and an amazing performance from Tori vocally, musically, and from the orchestra as well, but it doesn't fit into the thematic content of the album. I don't think it does. I agree with you. We are on the same side, David. Who are you fighting? High five. Mark this occasion. All right. The song next appears on the Precious Things promo CD. So at the end of the Little Earthquake cycle, they were going to promote Precious Things as the last single, right? Mm -hmm. And there's a rare CD single of Precious Things, or a promo single, I mean. And this song was on there. How wonderful. Our very own Precious Thing, Flying Dutchman. A rare jewel. That artwork on that promo CD single... I love that artwork, like that whole shoot. You know what art I'm talking I about? I do. She has like a vest on almost, doesn't she? Yeah, the black. I love it. We next see the song on the Pass the Mission Part 1 CD single recorded live in Chicago, March 24th, 1994, and released in May 1994. And let's play that, Oliver. Hey, kid, I got a rod for you. They say your brain is a comic book tattoo and you'll never be anything 
The song next appears on Under the Pink and More Pink, a double CD tour edition from Australia, released only in Australia, November 1994. Compile, you know, like the B-side. That's actually a really great B-side compilation up to that point. It is. <laughs> and can we go back to the Virgin brand for a second? Why do you always want to talk about Virgin? They always get backstage. I got my dad to take me to Virgin Records in Hollywood at the height of, well, when my Tory fandom was like reaching its fever pitch because I was like, there have got to be imports there. We've got to make a trip to Virgin Hollywood. There's got to be imports there. And sure enough, the first thing I found was under the pink and more pink. And I didn't even know it existed. Wow. So I was like, what? And it was expensive. And I got my dad to buy it for me. And I didn't know what the track listing was because it just looked like a copy of Under the Pink, but it had this white sticker on the front. So anyway, it was worth it. The only copy of Under the Pink and More Pink I've ever held in my grubby little hands was donated to our show by a wonderful listener. And then, like, it came in and we sent it out. It was donated to the show, so we sent it out as a gift for someone who won a contest. I Mm. can't remember who. But yeah, that's the only time I've ever held it. So I'd keep my eye on your copy. Keep your eye on your horizon and your copy of Under the Pink and More Pink. Oh, you do? I do, just in case, yeah. I'm not saying Christmas is coming up, but... Mm, but... Da, da, da. We next hear Flying Dutchman on a piano, disc A, alternate mix... Why don't you speak a little on the differences between the two mixes, David? I think it's primarily that the strings don't kick in until the first verse kind of proper. The piano intro is all just piano and the strings don't come in until the vocals start. Which do you prefer? I prefer the original version. It sounds kind of naked and it gives it like a weird almost demo quality. It does feel naked. It feels like just because we know it in such an intimate way and mm-hmm. like this is how we've always experienced the song, it does feel very naked. Yeah. Gold Dust is the next time we see the song in October of 2012. That's a long time. So from 2006 to 2012, it hides. It doesn't mm. appear on any original bootlegs in 2005. It doesn't appear on any legs and boots in 2007. But here it is in 2012. Rearranged. Roll that, Oliver. Straight suits. They don't understand She tried That one with the alligator boots But the other side drew in What do you think of the rearrangement? It's similar, but since it's a full orchestra, there's a little percussion. No one says percussion, right? But there's it's not just strings. It's more fleshed out. Add some percussion. Woodwinds. Phil, give me some percussion. Yeah. yeah. I hear it. Like, this is my experience of the Goldust version is that it's because there is that, like, added world of sound. Because it's all added, it feels to me much more like a musical I feel mm-hmm. like those songs, like it's like the musical version of Flying Dutchman, like because you know she was she was writing the Light Princess, it was on her mind. So I feel like it's arranged as if you had arranged the song in a musical. Yeah. What do you think? You're doing like wings, windmills, tap dancing your way through. Oh yeah, out there, Flying Dutchman. Yeah. Well, not. <laughs> I mean, not like cabaret necessarily. Why not? <laughs> 
<laughs> I mean, it could be. It could work. Um, we next see the song again on the Little Earthquakes Deluxe Edition remaster in April 2015. And again on the Under the Pink Deluxe remaster, which was the same live performance as the past submission single. And that came out in April 2015. Yeah. And there were a lot of mistakes on that Under the Pink Deluxe, but not this one. I was going to say, thank God they got it right. And they're like, let's not just throw, let's throw the gold dust version on here and say that yeah. it was from 1994. <laughs> they did make some mistakes on that pressing, but... This one was accurate. Thank God. We will once again take this opportunity to pitch ourselves as quality control for Tori's future yeah. <laughs> output. I agree. So we have no record. With the B-sides, it gets really tricky because she doesn't put any players generally. There's like there's no list of players on the sleeve of the China single, for example. So we can only assume that it's Tori Amos playing the piano. We can only assume that it's Tori Amos on vocals. Sounds like her to me. It's my trained ear. And we are assuming it's Nick DeCaro who arranged the strings. And mm. do you want to talk a little bit about that? Wouldn't it be wild if we found out it was Millie Vanilli all along? Like that's their actual voice? Yes. <laughs> they sound like a young Tori Amos. <laughs> yeah, so beautiful. Ugh. We assume it's Nick DeCaro because he arranged the strings for Silent all these years and Winter. But David Lord arranged the strings for China. And on the uh, piano track listing, it lists David Lord as like an exception with an asterisk. Like mm. this one was arranged by David Lord. But Flying Dutchman doesn't have any kind of notation. So we assume that that's in the same world as Winter and Silent all these years. And then David brought up a good point earlier, which was wouldn't they want to just knock it all out in one day? like one session and we know that china was added late in the game so it makes sense yeah, that it, that would have been recorded and arranged under different circumstances right exactly this is what's called educated guess this is why we're here sometimes it's called a wild leap flying leap take a flying leap david but as we well know if you're gonna jump you best jump far and we do <laughs> every time Interestingly enough, though, on the Little Earthquakes Deluxe CD booklet, she does credit producer David Seegerson for the song and then also mixed by John Kelly. So in June 1990, when Tori submitted her first version of this record, Flying Dutchman ended it. There was no Little Earthquakes. There was no Precious Things. There was no Tear in Your Hand. There was no Girl. So the original track listing was Crucify, Silent All These Years, Mary, Leather, Somebody Leave the Light On, which is Mother, Winter, Sweet Dreams, Upside Down, Russia, which is Take to the Sky, Happy Phantom, and Flying Dutchman. What do you th- Have you ever tried to listen to it in that order? I haven't, and I never will. Why? <laughs> I just can't imagine a world in which Mary is on this album. No. Everybody wants something from you. Everybody wants a piece of Mary. Piece of Mary. Going back to what we said earlier, how Flying Dutchman was... It's very confusing. Going back to what we said earlier about how Flying Dutchman ended the track, but Little Earthquakes made it onto the end of side A... That was like the final version before they mastered it, right? Like that was like the last. This is like a honey situation. Yeah, like the last minute, like let's take it off. Mm -hmm. Because in the collectibles book, they say East-West Records advanced promotional only cassettes. The first and rarest version includes Flying Dutchman as the 13th track, which was originally intended to be included on Little Earthquakes. Flying Dutchman was later removed from the album because of its length and later appeared as a B-side to China. China. Mm China. China. You know what's interesting to me is how on a piano, Tori's like, here's Little Earthquakes extended as I originally intended, but Leathers first. I'm like, what version of this exists? Yes. Like, this isn't lore. This isn't, this is apocryphal. <laughs> nope. And Mary isn't there. Yeah. Like, it's so confusing. That was, she just made that up. But 
listen to it in this version. I think it's an interesting ride. It's not satisfying because you don't have any girl. You don't have any little earthquakes, but it is a thing. You know, it's a thing. You can see where she was going with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you've listened to it, Crucify Silent Mary Leather. Mother Winter Sweet Dreams Upside Down Take to the Sky Happy Phantom Dutchman. Wow. Yeah. We have a playlist on our Spotify if you mm. want to find us at the Sideways Society. Look for Tori Amos Little Earthquakes WTF. Why don't you read this quote, David, from New Review from February 1994. Okay. At first, the boss of my American record company hated Little Earthquakes. Fool. He's a fool. Half of the staff hoped I'd be a white Nina Cherry. The other half wanted to make me into a female Elton John. It took a long time before they wanted to accept who I was and realize I could make the money that way. Could you imagine... I am still waiting for Tori to be a white Nina Cherry. <laughs> yeah. Instead of Buffalo Stance, it's Cornflake Dance. <laughs> yeah. Or like, who's that happy phantom on the street with a hand in a pocket and a crocodile feet? <laughs> yeah, that's good. Um, I love Nina Cherry. Don't get me wrong, but they're just different artists. <laughs> Who looked at Tori and was like, oh, good. We have our white Nina Cherry. <laughs> <laughs> From Vox Online, November 2001, Tori says, I'm the captain of my own ship, so to speak. I turn in the work I want to, and they deal with it. It's not about do they agree. I give them what I want done. Little Earthquakes was rejected, but that was that. After Why Can't Tori Read, I realized that I have to look myself in the mirror every morning. I decided that I needed to battle for what I believed in. If I needed to have a battle with the president of Warner Brothers, then so be it. I was prepared to do that. Good for her. They're like, Tori, that won't be necessary. No, girl, we're cool, we're cool. No, no. <laughs> no, no. If I need to have a battle with the president of Warner Brothers, I will do it. No, we're cool, girl. These are quotes about Tori steering her own ship. Obviously, with Flying Dutchman being, that's like the thematic link. Let's read this from the line of best fit, September 29, 2012. You once said that Honey was your favorite song off of Under the Pink, even though it was not actually on Under the Pink. For many fans, Flying Dutchman is the best song from the Little Earthquakes era, even though it didn't make the final cut. Was it meant to be on it? It was, and it was a heartbreaker when it was taken off. And that's why she's having her time again now, 20 years later. Obviously, because it is a Dutch orchestra, Flying Dutchman naturally showed itself and said, look, it is my time. Also, comic book tattoo happened, and the title is a lyric from Flying Dutchman. I wrote that about all the young boys making comics at the time, whose parents said that they were wasting their lives. Rance was a young guy who would crash at the Hollywood studio apartment behind the Methodist church when I would go and stay with my boyfriend at the time, Eric Ross. That song is really coming into her own in the 21st century with comic book tattoo, and now with the Dutch orchestra, so she's having quite a career. She blossoms late, but she's having a ball. Hey, you know, this song is about blossoming late. This song is about it will get better. This song is about stick around. So stick around for 2012 and blossom, little Dutchman. Mm. I mean, it's a beloved B-side. It's a beloved B-side. There are Flying Dutchman stands everywhere. Everywhere you look, you could round the corner and there's another Flying Dutchman stand. Ah! Ah! Are you out there? Yeah, I'm here. Let's read this from Arudatorum Press on December 9th, 2019. Amos' song is a soaring and expansive piece, making liberal use of the sampled strings and clocking in at six and a half minutes, with multiple different verse structures that get employed over the course of it. One reporter rather fatuously suggested this song had a kind of movement-like structure, to which Amos rather accurately replied, It's not the structure of your typical pop song. Lyrically, it's a rousing statement of belief, first in Hosley, who she sympathetically portrays as being constantly badgered about what he'll do with his life, and in the second verse, describing 
describing a woman who is chronically misunderstood by the straight suits. This is possibly Amos portraying herself after the failure of Why Can't Tori Read? Picking up on Hosley's identification with the famous ghost ship, Amos spends the chorus hailing the missing ship, imagining it not as a bunch of lost souls desperate to get home, but as sort of intrepid explorers of far-out conceptual rooms. As she tells her characters, they can't see what you were born to be. Understandably, given its use of canned strings, Amos picked the song to rework on Gold Dust. The reworked version pulls the strings back, creating a more nuanced and complex version that can vividly stand alongside the camp glories of the original. Where it's stored and encouraged, the Gold Dust version is warm and inviting, offering comfort instead of inspiration. I do not know about this write-up. Tell the people why. These are not sampled or canned strings. This article is implying that these are programmed strings or canned. This was recorded with a real orchestra. Canned strings, my can. And would we call Flying Dutchman a campy song? I would definitely not call the song campy. I think this is Ernest AF. Who is this guy? Well, should we get to the line by line? Okay. All right. Hey, kid, I got a ride for you. Hey, kid, I got a ride for you. Who's the kid and who's speaking to the kid? Who's luring the kid? Well, can I just say right off the bat that with this opening line, I think maybe Flying Dutchman would have made a good opening song for Little Earthquakes. Really? I kind of see Tori as the captain of the SS Flying Dutchman with like a little hat on and her sailor suit. She's like, hey, kid, I'm picking you up. Come aboard my ship. I got a ride for you. That's interesting. I don't think in any iteration it was presented as the first track, but as we'll see in the live section, she plays it first a lot throughout her career. Like it's consistently often in the first slot. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's her way of saying like her show, like come on this journey with me. Hey kids, I got a ride for you. Yeah. And I just, that kind of embodies who I think Tori is to me or a lot of us in general. She like swept us away on this journey, away from our everyday lives to show us a new world. I don't know. Yeah. Obviously, this was inspired by Rance. So I think that maybe he's the kid. Maybe she's singing specifically to him, you know, in the writing of it, because he was such a comic book nerd, because he had introduced her in LA to all those comics. Mm -hmm. I think to Hey Kid, it's just so universal, because maybe she is speaking to a specific kid. But in this way, you can sort of transfer it to that she's talking to you. Mm -hmm. Right? Hey, kid. Hey. Ooh, your ears perk up while you're listening to it. Me? Mm -hmm. You know, when the radio talks back on TV. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, kid. I got a ride for you. She's already playing here, I think, with the flying boat narrative or the missing boat narrative. Mm -hmm. Right? Like, hop on my boat and I'll take you on a journey. Mm -hmm. I feel space already. I feel space because of the flying. Maybe it's like I feel like a flying saucer. Which is interesting because, you know, Flying Dutchman is a nautical story or a nautical myth, but she weaves in references to space, too. Oh. Isn't there like some version of Peter Pan or like another sort of fairy tale where where there is a ship that travels through space? I think there is. Yeah, I know that there's a ship in Peter Pan. Mm -hmm. Isn't there? Or am I thinking Pinocchio where he escapes his cruel dungeon master? Geppetto and goes and finds the ship of broken children or something. (laughs) I don't know, but I think there was like a 90s Peter Pan cartoon that was on like after school in the afternoons. Do you remember that? I think Tim Curry was the voice of Captain Hook and I believe (gasps) Captain Hook's ship was the Flying Dutchman in that version of Peter Pan. El Sophisticado. (laughs) They say your brain is a comic book tattoo. They say your brain is a comic book tattoo. I mean, first of all, 
what is a comic book tattoo except for this phrase that she's weaved together that conveys this image? I'm feeling a kid who, whoever they is, the parents or the adults, just don't get him. They say, you're playing video games, you're reading comic books, why don't you focus on your schoolwork? And that's kind of how we all were, right? Like, that's how you just feel like your parents don't understand you, whatever you're into. Yeah. It's funny that you say video games also, because that's what I was going to say. I think this is a way of saying, you know, like your brain is full of or imprinted with things that we don't find to be of any value. And you're sort of putting your effort in the right direction. And I'm sure that's a very sort of common feeling we all had as adolescents. Like what's important to me? My parents just, parents just don't understand, if you will. They say your brain is a comic book tattoo. We can't forget, obviously, that this is the title for her comic collection mm -hmm. that was curated and edited by Rance Hosley, which is a beautiful volume, huge volume of comic retellings or inspired by her songs, comics inspired by her songs, which is uh, awesome. You should buy it if you don't have it. You can find it on her Tory store. I think she still has a few copies left. And you have interviewed many of the artists featured in the book on this very show. Yeah, and actually, yes, that's true. And for the From the Choir Girl Hotel season, we interviewed every single Choir Girl Hotel comic book artist, and we're mm -hmm. doing like a little special for just that season. Yeah, putting it all in one episode. When you'll never be and you'll never be anything. I never felt that hostility from my parents, did you? No, absolutely not. It sucks that this kid, who his parents believe he's wasting his time or he's not gonna amount to anything, that they are really hard on him. She paints a picture really skillfully in three lines of a kid who's got some serious family problems. What will you do with your life? Oh, that's all you hear from What will you do with your life? Oh, that's all you hear from noon till night. I do think most of us are encouraged to walk a practical path as opposed to, for lack of a better way to put it, pursuing our dreams, like your childhood dreams. I think there comes a point where whether it be your parents or just society in general, whoever, people kind of say, okay, it's time to grow up now. Like, when are you going to get a real job? When are you going to do something real? So I don't think for the most part... We exist in a culture that encourages us to believe really when it comes down to it that our dreams can come true, especially when it comes to, I don't know, what will you do with your life, uh, career dreams? It's like, okay, yeah, you can have whatever hobbies you want. Do your comic book stuff on the side, but like you need to go work at a bank or something. I feel really lucky because my parents were so young that they were too busy figuring out what they were going to do with their life that I never really heard that. I never really felt that pressure either. And I was super into theater from a young age and it just kind of was like, that's what I'm gonna do. I luckily didn't have that pressure because I graduated college on the same day as my mom. So it took her a while to figure out what she was doing. I luckily didn't have that pressure. I had like a host of other problems, David, but no one was pressuring me to help me be financially stable in my later years or help me get a retirement account. <laughs> Take a trip on a rocket ship, baby, where the sea is the sky. Take a trip on a rocket ship, baby, where the sea is the sky. Mm. Talk to me about that line. To me, it just speaks to kind of opening your eyes to possibilities and that your life can look any way you want it to and it doesn't have to look like anybody else's. And that's really like part of what Tori brought to my life, like opening me up to possibilities or showing me that you could ask questions that I didn't know you could ask. So it's like, yeah, I'm going to sort of spirit you away from 
this conventional life or the life that you thought you were obligated to lead and I'm going to show you something else. Yeah, like this take a trip on a rocket ship is the invite. So come on, take a trip on this rocket ship. And like you said, how she's spiriting you away and it just kind of makes you feel better. You know, it really is what she brought to your life, I think is what you said. Mm -hmm. I also will continue that with where the sea is the sky, where like nothing is as you know it. Like everything is, it's like, it gets better. Everything's better up here. I feel like Tori's career is like, or the Flying Dutchman as Tori's career is like Noah's Ark. She's like, I shall gather up my fans two by two and spear them away <laughs> on this experience that only we understand because we're a bliss of another kind, baby. She'll gather up the gays two by two. Two twinks, two bears, two otters. <laughs> Get more. <laughs> Um, Tori, we need more than two. <laughs> we need at least 20 otters. Thanks. Imagine Tori's arc. Seriously. I know the guy who runs the place and he's out of sight. I know the guy who runs the place and he's out of sight. To me, that's a reference to God or the captain of the ship, basically. Take a trip on this rocket ship. I know the captain of the ship. Mm -hmm. He's real cool. Mm -hmm. You know, we've discussed before... Even though she is transgressive towards religion, she's never really said she doesn't believe in God, right? There is that belief in God. Do you look at this as the guy who runs the place? Do you think there's any anything there? I've never thought about that. I always see her as addressing the captain of the Flying Dutchman. You know, the captain from the story or the myth who's kind of cursed to roam, wander for all time. I guess there's something about the way it's written. I know the guy who runs the place, which reminds me a little of me and a gun, right? Me and Jesus a few years back used to hang. I don't know. It just There's something in the casualness of how she references him there that is casual here. I know the guy who runs the place. And then God, sometimes you just don't come through. Do you need a woman to look after you? It's like so casual when she addresses God. Mm -hmm. That makes me feel like there's something in here. But I also endorse your thought on he's just the captain of the ship, babe. Mm -hmm. Who's the captain of your ship? Is it Tori? Oh, for sure. Captain T. Who's the captain of your ship? Uh, probably Tori, like my little weird ship of misfit toys, mm. misfit boys. Do you imagine Tori, like <laughs> it's an episode of the Brady Bunch, like when Greg Brady has two dates and she's putting on different captain hats and running back and forth to our ship. So we don't know that she's captaining two at the same time. Oh, David, that's <laughs> way before my time. Is it? Yeah. Well, reruns aren't before your time. What's a rerun? Rerun, you say? Rerun? I know the guy who runs the place and I love the phrase out of sight. I was just like, you're out of sight, babe. I don't know. I love it. It's like um, in the uh, Little Earthquakes video when she has that sound issue and she says, isn't that happening? Which you love. Like, isn't it's, that happening? It's happening. See, it's out of sight. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, it's of the era that she grew up in, 70s, right? Like, it's a very 70s phrase, out of sight. But my favorite 70s phrase is Stone Fox. And in The Virgin Suicides, when Josh Hartnett whispers in Kirsten Dunst's ear in the movie, in the class movie, and he whispers down, he leans down, he's like, you're a stone fox. Mm. And I was just like, oh, that's my dream. Do you want someone to whisper that in your ear? Don't you? Yes, I'll do it for you if you want. Crickets. <laughs> it's not the same. Flying Dutchman, are you out there? So the Flying Dutchman, obviously it's the ship, right? And it comes from the myth. Mm -hmm. 
is she like transferring herself into the mindset of the kid at this point? Is the kid calling for the Flying Dutchman? Are you out there? Is he looking for that ship? Because if she knows the guy, if she's on the rocket ship, why is she looking for the Dutchman, the Flying Dutchman? I feel like Tori in this story is kind of Jiminy Cricket. Oh. Or like the fairy. I guess those are both from Pinocchio, like the blue fairy. Like she's kind of the spirit guide. Like Tinkerbell, yeah. Yeah, who's like leading the kid or Rance or us, the listener, to the Flying Dutchman and showing them a way out and showing them possibilities. And I love that she's kind of flipping the script here because like the story we could say is kind of a tragedy, right? This captain sort of rejects God or calls upon the devil and as a result is cursed to wander for the rest of his life. But that's not painted as a negative thing here. And I think that's kind of the idea of the song. Like life is a journey. Life is about wandering, not necessarily having to know all the answers. So I think that's Mm -hmm. kind of what I take from this piece. Like it's okay to be in this place and it's okay to not necessarily know who you are or what the arc of your life is going to be. But it's about the exploration of that and the freedom to do that exploring. Well stated. Straight suits, they don't understand. Straight suits, they don't understand. Now for this, I want to go back to what you said earlier about how you look at Tori as like the Tinkerbell or the fairy, the spirit fairy, like the, the Jiminy Cricket character calling the boy forward, right? Or calling the boy onto the ship or like leading him. Here, I think she's doing the same thing, but to herself, because I think this whole second verse is about her, Tori, because straight suits, they don't understand seems to me to be her experience as well trying to get little earthquakes made or trying to make it in the music industry. Yeah. I think whenever Tori references suits, to me, that always means record executives. Yeah. Sugar means Mark and suits means record guys. Mm Mm-hmm. She tried that one with the alligator boots, but the other side drew She tried that one with the alligator boots, but the other side drew her in. Isn't that, I mean, that's obviously about Tori Amos because she's done a lot of talking about her snakeskin boots. So what's the one that she tried? She tried to be someone else. She tried that other personality or that other persona, the one holding the sword over her head. The one that the parent said, what will you do with your life? You need to do something with your life. You need to be successful. And she tried that one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She tried that one with the alligator boots, but the other side drew her in. But the other side drew her in. To me, that means she sort of turned her back on authenticity or who she had originally wanted, wanted herself to be and what she originally wanted to do with this gift, but to please people or to find success in the industry, she sort of donned a mask or another persona, and we all know that never really works. It's very dark, right? Even as we go into the next line. Heart falling fast when she left Even the Milky Way was dressed in black Heart falling fast when she left Even the Milky Way was dressed in black There's like a death, there's like a spiritual death Mm -hmm. there. I feel like we're on our way to the funeral because she left and the Milky Way is dressed in black. There's a funeral allegory there, but Mm. then the other side drew her in is her spirit death. Mm -hmm. I could even see the Milky Way representing the muses Mm -hmm. that Tori kind of turned her back on. Yeah, you know how like songs just kind of come to her from out of the ether? Mm -hmm. 
the Milky Way is her original name for the Muses Nine. Mm-hmm. They were like, we were trying to bring you silent all these years, but you decided to just like abandon us and try to write Skirts on Fire on your own or with Randy Jackson. Hey, I love that song. I didn't say it wasn't a good song. <laughs> Tori's a genius, so she can just this like... skirt is on fire. <laughs> skirt is on fire. <laughs> can you imagine if that's what the melody actually was? She stole Tori's two pianos at once and her skirt's on fire. I know. We should try to get Alicia on to defend herself. <laughs> Take a trip on a rocket ship, baby. The sea is the sky. Take a trip on a rocket ship, baby. The sea is the sky. Oh my god, up is down, left is right. The sea is the sky, the sky is the sea. But I kind of love that because she turns the Flying Dutchman or the ship into a spaceship. So yeah. the sky really does become the sea. Honestly, if the ship in the myth is like wandering and lost for all time, right? It recalls the Bermuda Triangle in a way, which maybe is like, it's not a far leap. If you're lost forever in like another dimension within our reality, like if you're just kind of lost forever, that's very spacey. Hmm. Can I just say to you, or ask you rather, do you think that this song is in any way tied to Black Dove? Because she sings, you don't need a spaceship. You've already lived on the other side of the galaxy. Is Black Dove a sequel? Is there a callback happening? Interesting. And it's not you've already lived. It's they don't know you've already lived. So they come back. They, mm. the ones who say, what will you do with your life? Mm-hmm. They don't know you've already lived on the other side of the galaxy now. Mm-hmm. You took that trip on the rocket ship. Mm-hmm. It did get better. And now you don't need a spaceship. You don't need a spaceship. You can access it there without the spaceship. Yep. And let's be honest. Let's get real. We all house our own galaxies to explore, right? We don't need to look outward or any further than our own backyard, kind of like the Wizard of Oz. It's all about the inner journey, and that is never more true than of Tori's work. I don't have a backyard. <laughs> I live in downtown LA. Do you have a balcony? No. Well, I'll just crack a window. Another guy who runs the place and he's It sounds really enticing. She just keeps making it sound better and better. Mm-hmm. That's how she gets us to go on tour and abandon our lives. We're like, ooh, that yeah. does sound good. Cause they can't see what you're born to be. Cause they can't see what you're born to be. Sometimes people just don't get you. Sometimes you are born into a family that doesn't see you, that doesn't get you. Mm-hmm. And you've got to, it's really difficult, but you've got to make your own way. You do. You know it, those people who have such supportive parents, don't they just stick in your craw? <laughs> yes, I am not going to pretend that I don't resent them. <laughs> I mean, good for you. I think the good news is that we were forced to have crises early in life, and those other people, it's all going to come crumbling down way later. We did the work up front. <laughs> That's all we can hope for. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think every gay, this is why I said to you, I don't know if I said this on the air or in just a pre-conversation, but like, I think that Flying Dutchman is sort of a gay anthem, even though it wasn't written to be a gay anthem. I understand why so many young gay kids from our generation or from the early Tory generation, like why we bonded with this song, because it is inherently our story, inherently our family, for the most part almost across the board when you're 12, 13, 14, they don't get you. They don't understand you because they can't see what you were born to be because you haven't come out to them. You haven't mm. you haven't maybe even come out to yourself, but very literally they can't see what you're born to be. And I think that that's why a lot of gay Tori Amos fans have a connection to this song. And that's why, you know, she sees you. 
and that's why we have a connection to her. I love when Tori inadvertently writes gay anthems because I'm not sure she ever <laughs> sets know. out with the intention of doing that. Tori's work is kind of like riot the, poof. Well, okay, maybe, but for the most part, Tori's work is kind of like the Babadook. Like suddenly the gays yeah. take ownership of it, and everyone else is like, "Wait, what?" And we're like, "No, no, no! This is ours. <laughs> this is what it really means." Which do you think is more anthemic of a gay anthem, Flying Dutchman or Merman? <laughs> anthemic? Uh-huh. I would say Flying Dutchman. Yeah, you're right. Because you can get up and you can stand up and you can, yes, you can throw your hands. Are you still out there? Yeah, yeah. you're right. It soars. I feel like we should yeah. be constructing a cardboard ship for next tour. Mm-hmm. So when she performs okay. it, all the gays can sort of like raise the ship up <laughs> over their heads and sort of move it back and forth like it's bobbing on the gay seas. We should do a line of shadow puppets, one for like every song and you just like go into your little bag, whatever she's playing, you just hold up the ship. What else? For Merman, you hold up like a triton, like a shadow triton. Yeah, we need more props. We're going to really make yeah. Tori's show into a Rocky Horror type experience. Exactly. She'd love that. I bet she would really love that. She'd, she'd appreciate that. She would. I mean, someone last her held up a sign that said you're my playboy mommy and she was like i love that sign here you go and played it so oh you're my snow blind that's what i'm right you're yeah. my snow blind you just have to dress up as a snowman with a blindfold on you're my police me police yourself police yourself also can we open a restaurant <laughs> called the frying dutchman the frying dutchman yes if you got the capital i do okay let's do it <laughs> Don't tell me my dreams can't come true, Eve. Don't be a straight suit who doesn't understand. I'm opening the Frying Dutchman. I support you. I'll eat there every day. <laughs> well, you're not Afraid getting freebies. No. <laughs> you're paying full price as my friend and supporter. Rude. Every day? <laughs> every day. Fine. I'll pay full price. I'll pay full price every day. However, you have to name a dish after me. Okay. So people can be like, can I have the Eve? And it's like all my favorite things. They can see. They Can't See Me tells me that this song is about Tori Amos, right? In part, I think from verse to verse, as she tends to do, she's sort of slipping into different voices and different characters. And I think, yes, at this point, it's about her specifically and her personal experience. Mm -hmm. Unless she is playing consciously in the song, playing that fairy role or playing that sort of Tinkerbell come along with me role, then she's part of what he was born to be. Mm -hmm. She's the hostess of the ship and she's part of what he was born to be and they can't see me. So maybe she's putting herself in that character there too. Mm -hmm. So either way, she's in the story. And Rance has generously shared stories about experiencing Tori's feeling of rejection after Why Can't Tori Read kind of flopped and even when she was turning in songs for Little Earthquakes when they were rejecting the album. So I feel like this song is in part a response to all of that when she's really saying like they can't see me like who I am as an artist and what I'm trying to do like they're always wanting something else. They can't be They can't be what they can't believe. This to me is like the only time in the whole song where I have compassion for the parents because it's not that they're actively trying to prevent this person or this kid from being his best self. It's they just don't believe. They can't be what they can't believe. And it's like if you don't see it, you don't know it right? Like you Mm -hmm. don't know it's a possibility unless you see it. That's why visibility matters in trans communities and gay communities. That's why in all communities, visibility matters. And I think that's why I have compassion is like, they just didn't know that it was possible. The world is moving so fast, you know, and 
everything changes from week to week to week in a good way, how much we're progressing forward. But I still have compassion for like my older folks who like my grandma and stuff who, even though she is progressive herself, she doesn't move as fast, you know, like it takes her a minute to understand why we're using pronouns and like why we introduce with pronouns. You know what I mean? Like she's trying, but I, I still have compassion when she gets it wrong. Hmm. You know, like she doesn't mean any harm. Some old people mean harm, but... <laughs> I certainly don't want to make this about me or my experience or even the experience of being gay, but I think it's a good example. My parents just didn't know that I could have a fulfilling, happy life as a gay man because they just didn't know there was a possibility and they had seen a lot of evidence to the contrary. So they had to kind yeah. of be shown that this was possible. So you have a fulfilling life? <laughs> can you show me how that's possible? <laughs> they can see what you see. They can't see what you see. You have vision. You're a star, baby. You're a car girl. You're a star girl. Oh. But two, can I just say, you know, to be or do or have anything in your life, you first have to believe that it's possible. And kind of like you're saying, like, you have to have that vision and hold the vision yeah. and believe that you can manifest it or it can be made real or whatever you want to call it. But you have to believe it. Mm -hmm. If you kind of stand there with your arms crossed waiting for your life to prove you wrong and dazzle you, it's probably not going to happen. Dazzle me life. Dazzle me life. Prove to me that things aren't crappy. Keep the boys spinning in the wrong little world. They keep the boys spinning in their own little world. The idea of spinning, meaning like back and forth with this, like what will you do with your life nonsense? Like mm -hmm. he's just like dizzy from it. Mm -hmm. And their world is so limited that they just keep bouncing against these four walls when he's bound for bigger things. And to me, this is tied to the lyric from Mother, I walked into your dream and now I've forgotten how to dream my own dream. Like when Ooh, you're trying to meet other people's expectations, yeah, you can get lost. Tie him up so he won't see Tie him up so he won't say a word. That speaks to me of shame. What do you think about that? I see that definitely. It speaks to me of like manipulation and like constant back and forth. So eventually you just learn to stop speaking. Yeah. Because you don't want the arguments. Mm -hmm. Talk more about shame. Yeah, I just feel like when you get to a place of being afraid to speak up for yourself or to voice who you really are or what you really want because it's been kind of trained out of you or you've been taught or shown that what you want or what you're interested in or passionate about is wrong, especially when it bears no resemblance to the example, let's say, that's being set for you. People in general, whether it be parents or friends, a lot of people are uncomfortable when our lives kind of expand and we change for the better. People kind of like us to stay where they are because they feel threatened by it. That reminds me of this inspirational quote that I saw on like one of those Instagram pages, you know, uh -huh. hashtag blessed. And it was just basically like, people don't want you to grow. They want the version of you that they had the most power over. Mm. I think that that applies in this instance. Yeah. People want to maintain power over you. They don't want you to outgrow them. I think there's fear yeah. that if you're changing or if your life is changing, that you won't need them anymore. And maybe they're also threatened if you're moving forward because they think they should be doing a version of that too. And they don't want to yeah. <laughs> or don't know how. So they're like, yeah. can we all just like stay exactly where we are? That would be great. Thank you. Well, anything like that comes out of fear, a fear of like you can't do it for yourself. And so you don't do it for yourself. Like you said earlier, like dazzle me life. And that mostly comes 
comes out of fear. And when someone doesn't have that or isn't bound by that, it rocks your world. Mm-hmm. Like a free spirit, when you meet a genuine free mm-hmm. spirit. Oh, God. It does take a lot of courage to sort of state and claim what you want for your life. It's kind of easier to just like aim low or settle so that you won't be disappointed or that if you voice what you want from your life and then if for some reason it doesn't happen, you feel like you have to explain it to people. So Yeah, that's the basis of fear of success. Yeah. In some ways, it's easier to just not say anything or again, sort of say like, well, I don't believe things are going to work out for me or that I can have X, but like, show me that I'm wrong, life. Let's see what you got. So afraid he'll be what they never were. This always takes me back to the song Perfect by Alanis Morissette. Sometimes is never Never quite quite enough enough if you're you're flawless. flawless. (laughs) Yeah, this is what that reminds me of. He'll outgrow them or they just won't be able to control him, which sends their world into a tizzy, especially when you're talking about parents and kids, because parents so often, and I don't agree with this, parents so often look at their kids as a reflection of themselves. And so... The entire time you're growing up, you have no choice against it. And so your parent is sort of molding you or or presenting you as a reflection of themselves. Mm -hmm. But then when you hit adulthood and what you do doesn't gel with what they see themselves as, it sends their whole world into a spin. So then suddenly, like, you disappear. You know, like, you're no longer a reflection of me. And it's such Mm -hmm. narcissistic behavior. It is. absolutely. And I have to imagine as a parent, if your child wants a life that looks very different from yours or has values or interests that bear no resemblance to your own, you experience that as a kind of rejection. But it also is probably hard to relate to them. And you're like, I brought this person into the world and I just don't get it. (laughs) How are we so different? It's because of the dynamic that a lot of parents just absorb which is that they are the parent and you are the kid and Mm -hmm. they are there to teach you they're not there to learn from you and I hate that Mm -hmm. I feel like my dad has learned a lot I think my dad has grown a lot because I think he's open to listening and open to you know open to things Mm -hmm. but not a lot of parents are there to learn Mm -hmm. from you yeah I think you know a lot's possible when you shift that dynamic and I think it eventually happens Maybe involuntarily, but I think at a point our parents acknowledge or just instinctively start to learn from their children. But I was reading an interview with the father of a famous author, and he said something like, you know, if you bring children into the world and you expect anything from them in return, even including that they love you, then you've made a mistake. Like your kids don't owe you, your kids don't owe you anything because you decided to bring them into the world. And I was like, wow, if only everyone had that mindset, like your kids don't owe you anything. And they didn't come into the world to just automatically love you because you're their parent. Like you kind of have to earn it. Yeah. And it really frustrates me when you hear like on teen mom, or you see all these young teen moms saying that now they finally have someone to love them. And it just, it's so sad. Obviously, that is the worst reason on earth to bring a child into the world. Because you think you're guaranteed to have this little thing who's going to give you the love that you don't feel like you're getting. Awful. At that point, you don't need to be starting a college fund. You need to be starting a therapy fund. For your kid. Yes. Flying Dutchman. So then we have the chorus again, and it's just, she soars. She soars, David. Mm. 
have the background vocals, which are listed here as They Can't See But I Fly Now, They Can't See and I Just Lose Myself, They Can't See, They Can't See, You Know, You Know You're Trying, But They'll Hide Your Head, Hide Your Head, Hide Your Head. (laughs) So many know, you know, but then they can't see. I don't know why. Suddenly in this moment, I feel like Flying Dutchman is the center of the Little Earthquakes universe. Oh, it's tied to all these other songs. Maybe that's why Flying Dutchman was going to be the title of Little Earthquakes. God, she was right all along. Tori was right about her own album (laughs) all along. See, you've already taken a journey in just half this episode. I have. Oh, my God. My rocket ship is fueled up. You took a trip on this rocket ship, and I'm so proud of you. Get ready for reentry. But Flying Dutchman, are you out there? Again, it seems like a plea, right? Like, please tell me you're out there. I can't see you. I have no evidence that you exist. To me, that's kind of like looking for a savior in these dirty streets. Oh, yeah, streets. especially, are you still out there? Like, I need you now. Yes. Whoa. Like, I may be pussyfooted around getting on the ship earlier, but are you still out there? Yes. I missed the all aboard final call. All aboard, who's coming aboard? Olive Garden. <laughs> Talk to me about the backing vocals, David. Are these in the lyric book? Are these official? Because they're hard to decipher. They are not actually printed in the lyrics book, but I think that we got them because she's performed them live a few times, and we'll see that in the live section, and that's kind of, they're sort of transcribed from that. Do you dispute them? I don't. I just want to know if they're kind of cobbled together from live performances or people asking Tori at meet and greets, kind of like the third voice in Father Lucifer. I think it's transcribed predominantly from San Diego 98. Yeah. When Shaggy yeah. specifically asked her, can you do Flying Dutchman, but with the backing vocals? Yes. How dare you spoil the last act of the show, David? I know. I'm sorry. That was the big reveal. I'm sorry. I just love how presumptuous we are as Tory fans, and I mean that. Can you perform <laughs> Tallulah but without the Chasing Tornadoes intro, which someone actually right. asked her? <laughs> yeah. Can you do Yes, Anastasia, but please make sure you do the first half? Yes. Can you perform Mary Jane but change the lyrics to David Jane? David Blaine, who? I'm going to ask Tori to perform Tom Bigby as Lisa B next tour. Lisa B, Lisa mm-hmm. B. I'm going to ask her to perform Snowblind with me as Annabelle. Follow me, Ephraim Bell. What is your favorite lyrical moment in this entire song? This epic journey of a number. I think because they can't see what you're born to be, they can't be what they can't believe. Why? I don't know. That feels like a mantra almost or something that's very comforting, especially as it was for all of us. We were like in the midst of our adolescent angst. It's like this voice of someone who understands your experience. And it's like, don't worry about it. They can't see what you're born to be. Like You have promise, you have potential, you can live this life that you're wanting to live. Don't worry what anyone else says. I love it. What is your favorite lyrical moment? I'm going to go for the evocative, heart falling fast when she left, even the Milky Way was dressed in black. Poetry. I think that is poetry, absolute poetry. There's moments of beautiful imagery in her songs, and this is one of them, I think, where it's just like such a poetic image that she's conjuring. Yeah. That's why I love that line. Mm. Should we listen to Yanta? Yes. Let's do it. I have to say I'm very excited about this because I know this song is epic already as it is. Mm -hmm. And the piano, I just feel, I just, I'm ready for Yanta to give it. Mm. 
I feel like at the beginning we're on a roller coaster lift hill or a ski lift, Ooh. and then we go shooting down, and we're off. This is better than Six Flags. when the piano kind of follows the vocal melody pretty closely. she composed this envisioned or heard a string section i am always curious maybe not at this point in her career you know mm -hmm. but maybe she did i think now like if she wants strings, like she'll hear strings and she knows that she can achieve it. So she lets herself dream there. I feel like this composition really stands on its own without vocals. This could be performed as just a piece of music and be just as satisfying. We're drifting through space through that Milky Way at this point. You can see stars twinkling. I just love the contrast on how we get like really heavy bass notes and then she lets the music fall out. take us on a journey and there's all these shifts musically. 
I will never cease to be amazed by, well, anyone who can sing while accompanying themselves on piano, but this is just so rich and busy, if you will. The fact that she can maintain that while singing, I think, is a feat. Yeah, I agree, especially when you hear without the vocals and you realize how much she's doing. Almost in like a Little Earthquakes kind of way, they both really check that box of like, you feel exercised at the end, you know? Yeah, like, and exhausted. You feel spent. Yeah, you feel spent. I feel exercised and like I exercised. What's your favorite musical moment? I think that break after the bridge where she goes to those high notes right before Keep the Boy Spinning uh, where it comes sort of pounding back in, mm-hmm. cascading back in, really satisfying. Cascading. Really beautiful. Pounding. Mm-hmm. What about you? Today, my favorite musical moment is the Keep the Boy Spinning bridge because I didn't realize how much it was like it was like a tango kind of and it really reflects the lyrics that it's just, you're like kind of going back and forth. It's like dun, 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 dun. I just didn't hear it that way and I'm glad to hear it without the vocals for that moment because it sort of renewed my vigor for the bridge. Well, I'm going to have to start texting you now or maybe you can do it when you pull the song from the Toracle, every day on that specific day, I want to know what your favorite musical moment from Flying Dutchman is. <laughs> it changes from moment to yeah. moment. If you liked that performance, that was by our friend Yanta, and you can support him on Patreon, patreon.com slash Yanta. He's done a cover of almost every song by Tori Amos, so go support Yanta, get his full body of work. If you love sheet music and you want other things, go to figuretoryout.com. That's our friend Paul Roy's site. Paul Roy has collected 20 years of the Yahoo group, Figure Tory Out, collected all of that and archived it into the figuretoryout.com page. You have to be a member to get the transcriptions, but it's free to be a member. So check it out. Get into it. It's out of sight. Figure it out. Figure it out. Figure Tory out. You're listening to the Raxlin Slice chiptune remix of Flying Dutchman. And next up is the PS22 Choir.
doesn't matter what the consequences are. You see, when you find things out about yourself, like, why am I still in this relationship? Why do I just let people dump stuff all over my front yard? Why do I just let whoever it is say, you know, you could have been this and you could have been that. And yet, I wasn't those things. I didn't choose to become a doctor. I didn't choose to go to college. I did whatever it is for you. Everybody has this in their life. Even if you're quote unquote successful, there's the thing of, but if I'm not, is anybody still going to come to my party? Right. There's, everybody has things that we're afraid of. And, you know, we're not encouraged to kind of give those things a big hug. We're not encouraged to say, you know, I want to hang out with this for a while, this side of me that is uh, really insecure. We're on the line with Rance Hosley. Rance is a Harvey and Eisner award-winning artist, writer, and filmmaker. In our community, he's known not only for editing the incredible comic book tattoo anthology, drawing the incredible YKTR t-shirt that I'm wearing right now, he's also a longtime friend of Tori and the inspiration for this song that we're talking about today. Hi, Rance. Hey, how's it going? I'm so grateful for you to do this with us today, and I want to hear all of the stories about Flying Dutchman. So let's get started. Talk to us about how you met Tori, the first meeting. Uh, so Tori and I met when I was, I would guess, uh, you would say dating, uh, seeing, semi-involved with a girl at art school who Tori had babysat back in Baltimore. So this girl told me, hey, this friend of mine needs help packing and moving her house would you help and I was kind of like well I don't know if that sounds like a good idea and she's like oh she's a really talented musician you get along great with her you should do it and at the time I you know I was naive enough and optimistic enough to think like hey it's always great to meet new people (laughs) Uh, so I, I went and helped her move to the apartment which was the bungalow behind the church on the corner of Highland and Franklin and the girl in question and I stopped talking within like three weeks or so. But Tori became one of my, uh, I consider her one of my closest lifelong friends. So from there, we've been entangled in each other's shenanigans from me appearing in the Why Can't Tori Read video to uh, most recently painting the cover for Christmas Tide. So. Yes. Tell us about the early days, your days in art school, your early days in the 80s scene around Los Angeles. What was that like? What was the social temperature like hanging out with Tori, like doing all your stuff together? What was all that like? Uh, it was good. You know, it, L.A. is not L.A. anymore, in, in my opinion, not compared to what it was. And I'm, I'm absolutely at a position where I've been here well over 30 years and I finally reached the point where I'm like, OK, I think I've had capacity of it. Oh, really? Because... As dangerous as Los Angeles was in the 80s, and it absolutely was dangerous. Glory of the 80s is, is a pretty accurate representation of, of the kind of positive art community side of things. Uh-huh. Because there was this optimistic belief in that you could be anything, you know, to an almost delusional state. But the cost of living was low enough that you could move to Los Angeles not knowing anyone, not having a degree, and find a part-time job and find some roommates and start making your way into the city, you know, start making connections. And I think as a result, you ended up with a lot of really vibrant, diverse art as a result. You ended up with, and I don't mean that just in visual sense, I mean in in terms of writing, in terms of painting, in terms of music, 
you know, there were a lot of places to play. And, and, you know, everyone thinks of the 80s as being, you know, the Sunset Strip and hair metal and everything. But there was also, you know, uh, the underground scene like Scream, where you ended up having, you know, bands like Jane's Addiction emerge. You had Guns N' Roses emerged out of this. You had um, Shiva Burlesque emerge out of this. So there were a lot of really interesting, diverse bands. Afghan Wigs is another one. Mm. So we do hear all about the music scene in the 80s, and we hear about, I mean, I love, I hate the phrase 80s music, but I love New Wave, and I love all of that sort of era. And obviously, Why Can't Troy Read, I believe, is incredible. I think it's incredible. I think it's under-fucking-rated, as it says on my shirt. Talk to us about yeah. that time, working with Tori on that video, listening to her write the music, the conversations that you would have with her about the music. Yeah, I mean, the, so... One of the first times I met Tori, she played just her in the piano some of the songs that, that would end up on Why Can't Tori Read. Um, she played Face and uh, Cool on Your Island and <sighs> Fire on the Side as, you know, as just her and piano. Mm-hmm. The goal of any artist, again, whether you're talking about writing or filmmaking or music or whatever, is, is to be undeniable. You know, someone may not gel with your taste as a creator, but the goal is to have it be so that by anyone who observes it is like, well, that's undeniably talent. That is an undeniable vision. And the thing I learned very quickly was when Tori would ask me, what do you think of this? And she would play something. I had to look away from her while she's playing it so that I could actually just listen to the music because it was this very hypnotic effect. You know, she's, she's a very powerful performer. Yeah. in terms of her presence. And when you're like four feet away, it's like, forget it. You're, you can't be objective about it. So it would, it would usually be a situation where, for instance, when I was staying in her place while she was writing the next round of stuff that ended up on the earthquakes, I would be in the kitchen while she was in the main room playing piano and writing because there was absolutely no way that I was going to be able to hold up to the intensity of that music in that closed space. Mm-hmm. So... The, the thing that, you know, I, I think that the songs, I think the songs of Oh, I Can't Try to Read are great songs. In some cases, I really wish that the demos were the version. Mm. But I also think that, like, a song like Floating City, I think is fucking amazing. Yeah. That yeah. opening bass line on Floating City is just, like, if you've got a good sound system, it, like, shakes you down to your so spine. So good. That's, that's, that's a, great, a great thing. And I think that when the time came to do a video for it, I had been doing storyboards for Marty Colner's Cream Cheese Productions, which is at the time, Marty was the guy you went to. He had done everyone from Cher to Stevie Nicks to the Rolling Stones and was best known at the time for doing bands I worked with him on like Aerosmith, Scorpions, Whitesnake, Poison, Kiss, etc. And I uh, said to her, I said, you need to have Marty do your video. And she's like, well, Atlantic won't support that. So I called up Marty and I said, this friend of mine has an album coming out. You need to at least meet with her because I think that you could do an amazing job on the video. And I think that you two would hit it off and you should work together. So they met and she went up there and played Marty's grand piano for him. And he said, I'll do it. And Atlantic said, I, we will not pay your fee because uh, you are the highest paid music video director. And Marty said, Nope, that's fine. I will do it the same way I did with Aerosmith. I will do it for points on the album rather than, than the normal fee, um, which is a gamble, but it was a gamble worth it. I think. Yeah. 
And yeah, so I, I did storyboards and, and production design for the video, and, and best known as getting my crotch spray painted in the middle of it. Yeah. Um, and I, I wish I still had those jeans because I would sell them on one of the Tory collectors <laughs> things. Because God knows I am not that skinny anymore. And um, they would be, per- and someone would buy them. Yes. Oh no! Absolutely, someone would buy them and, and frame them in a shadow yeah. box. And it would, <laughs> yeah. It would be both amazing and humiliating. I- you know, so, but it was, yeah. Okay, so take us to Flying Dutchman, because we we know that you... Well, you just tell us the story. Tell us everything. <laughs> so, with Flying Dutchman, I had moved back to uh, Washington State. This is when she was in the process of writing what would end up being the earthquakes. And I had gone back and forth between Washington State and, and Los Angeles, trying to, get, trying to get my shit together, trying to figure out what, what the hell I was going to do with my life. And at the same time, Tori was trying to figure out, like, what am I going to do? The album, you know, why can't Tori read bombs? What do I do? And, and so she and Eric just started going back to basics, you know, and, and myself and Eric and, and a number of people around her were encouraging her, like, this is where you're strongest. You know, do this. And so there were a lot of phone calls back and forth between Tori and I where she would encourage me and I would encourage her. And like, this is, you know, this is the role of friendship is when, you know, mm-hmm. life kicks you in the teeth. You know, your friends look on the ground for the, for the missing teeth. Yeah. So she called me at one point and said, I wanted to ask you a question. And I was, I was having a bad day. First of all, the list of probably I've been in my 20s. I was a rather emo little shit. And I, <laughs> and I absolutely should have been appreciative of the opportunities I had. I should have, you know, done a lot of things differently, but it didn't change the fact that I was very like Oliver Klempt and oh woe is me and oh my life is so miserable and you know, blah blah blah, all that shit. And she called and said, In mythology, what character do you relate to most if you had to be one character of mythology? And I didn't even hesitate and I told her, I'm the Flying Dutchman and she didn't know the story of Flying Dutchman. So I, there was a fish and chips chain of restaurants called Skippers in the 70s and 80s. So I went and got my Skippers Legend of the Sea collector glass uh, out of the cupboard and read to her the legend of the Flying Dutchman. And basically the legend is that as the ship was rounding the Cape of Good Hope, they experienced a horrific storm. And the, the ship was in danger of sinking, and he called out to God once, save, my, save myself, save my men, and uh, nothing happened. And he did it a second time, and nothing happened. And a third time, and nothing happened. And finally, he said, a pox on you, God, fuck you, um, Satan, come. If you will save my men, I will pledge allegiance to you. And Satan instantly shows up and goes, you got it. And they sail through the storm without harm. And they get on the other side of the storm. And the angel of the Lord comes down and says, because you betrayed God, you are cursed to sail the earth forever without comfort, without harbor, without safety. You will serve as a warning to everyone. And so I tell Tori this story and and she's just dead silent for a while. And she's like, do you, is that really what you feel? And I was like, yeah, it's absolutely what I feel. And hindsight and everything, like I I understand more why I, and I still love that story. Aside from the Tory version, Jethro Tull's Flying Dutchman is one of my favorite Jethro Tull songs. The, the, the mythology of that, of trying to do the right thing, trying to do the good thing against everything that's battering you against, and then compromising your moral stance in order to do good and then being condemned for it, and how that applies both on a social level and on a level of commentary about religion and Christianity. It's a very powerful myth. 
for me. But at the time, it was just a matter of like, oh, woe is me, I'm cursed. I'll never find comfort. I'll never find safe harbor. I'm, mm. Oh, woe is me, you know, the melodrama of the 20s goes along with the glory of the 80s. <laughs> and so she said, uh, okay. And we talked for a little while and hung up. And then she called me like three, four weeks later and, and said, do you have a minute? And I said, sure. She said, okay, hang on and put the piano down or put the phone down on top of the piano. And then she proceeded to play Flying Dutchman, one you think. And it just fucking broke me. And, and she said, that's for you. And so that was an incredibly kind gift. And I think this is the thing that we, we do most in life. Like I, I would say that most of our efforts as humans are just trying to feel that we're seen, that someone sees us for who we are, not as the facade that we put on or not the presentational performative thing, mm -hmm. but who we actually are. Like the, the good and the scared parts and the and the strong parts and the damaged and you know, I won't say evil but but, but bad parts. Yeah. 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 We're we're all complex people. And it was like that was one of those moments where where like you feel like, Oh, my friend has you know, the kindness of the effort aside, it was one it was so touching because it was like, Oh, this friend of mine really sees me and went out of her way to see me. So yeah, it's a pretty special thing. I could not listen to it for a long time after the China EP came out with it on it mm -hmm. because it was too close, you know? It was a little too emotionally raw, a little too true. And when we did Conflict Tattoo, everyone assumed that I would do Flying Dutchman Story. And I didn't specifically because I want, and, I, and it was never even one of my choices because I wanted the distance of seeing what someone else saw in it, Yeah, you know? And David Mack and I had a like a three day talk about the history of the song and what it means to me and why I why I think it's a great song. Again, it goes to the undeniable thing. Yeah. It might not be your taste. You might not understand all of it. Because there are there are certainly artists that I don't twig to or relate to, but I also can't deny their talent. So anyway, that's why that's why I gave the story over to David Mack and, and Comic Book Tattoo. And, yeah. And there we go. Well, it's incredibly moving how the song was written and just to hear sort of the background and your reaction to it. At what point were you able to listen to it again? And what's your relationship with the song now? I, I think the song, you know, I, I love the song. We're coming up on the 30th anniversary of, uh, of both the album and all the songs associated with it. Mm -hmm. So I've been spending some time with those girls, <laughs> would say, and I love the song. I, you know, it's interesting because it's this weird time machine for me that allows me to go back and observe you know 20 something rants and just want to pat him on the head and tell him oh oh you troubled little shit if only you would just like open your eyes and see you know your life would be much better you know which again is the is the the irony of it is the, is the irony of the song is, is about people not being able to see you know what you actually have inside of you in terms of your potential in terms of the things that make you magic, right? Yeah. But I think the, the other aspect of the song is that we as individuals frequently don't see the magic we have inside of ourselves. And I, that's kind of my relationship with it now, is that kind of anthem and meditation on keeping in touch with that yeah. and being aware of that. Beautiful. Um, when she played it for you that first time over the phone, was it fully formed? Yeah, it was it was the full piano version. The the only difference yeah. was that you know obviously there's not there's not strings involved and there's not the big violin crescendos in that. Mm -hmm. But it was the full length, wow. full version, 
starting with this, this beautiful, quiet little tinkling mm-hmm. piano to becoming this thundering. You know, it's one of the thunderstorm songs. Yeah, for like sure. it and Precious Things are the thunderstorm songs on that album, on the on that song cycle of of that era. The piano hits like thunder breaking on a windy day. There's there's threat to it, and there's promise as a part of that. So, I love it. That's a perfect description. That song, uh, like thunder breaking on a windy day. Do you know uh, when the string? Did she always write it for strings, or did was that a suggestion someone made? Or this song is an anomaly in that it was on Little Earthquakes. It was completely orchestrated and then taken off. So I want to know the background on on the string sessions. I think you know, you know, this is this is thirty years and, <laughs> and a significant amount of life trauma and chemical abuse in the in the interim, which. There tend to leave gray areas, we shall say, in yeah. memory. But if my memory serves, the intention was always to have it be strings and, and to have it fully be orchestrated. Because I remember the arguments with Atlantic about the budget cost for that. Mm. Because there's the arrangement, there's the orchestration, there's all the players, yeah. you know, and, and each take is expensive and all of these things. So I, I believe that that was always the intent because given the, the state of play, I can't imagine that it would have been an Atlantic suggestion. And I don't think that a producer would have fought for that if it wasn't something that Tori was like, this has to yeah, happen. Yeah. This is necessary. But that said, well, since that time, of course, you've continued to work with Tori, Comic Book Tattoo, which you mentioned, which we'll talk about at a later date. The shirt I'm wearing, like I said, and also Christmas Tide. I'm glad to see, like, you guys got the band back together. I'm glad to see, like, your work on the vinyl record. Do you have any plans in the future with Tori? Any work, upcoming work, possibly? Spoilers you can share? <laughs> possibly. Well, you know, it's just, I, I will say that, you know, there's confirmed dates now for Europe mm-hmm. uh, and I will just say between now and and this time next year there's going to be a lot of Tory going on all right um, yeah I love it talk to us about your film you're currently working on a film which it was one of the most challenging experiences ladies and gentlemen I had booking rants <laughs> for this interview today I'm glad he made it work because he is incredibly busy tell people about your film so I had this idea to write a feature film about the fact that my assistant scoutmaster growing up was a serial killer. Oh my God. So I did that in 2019 and it got great reaction from studios and production companies. Uh, and part of the reaction was like, yes, this is a great story. And yes, you need to direct it. And then the caveat always came to, but you have not directed live action before. All your direction has been animation. And also, uh, why do you have to fill it, film it in, in bumfuck Idaho? Because there's, there's no infrastructure there. And, and why would you do that? Why don't you just shoot it in, in Vancouver or in Northern California? And, and my point was that the environment, the light, the physical space, um, all of these things are as much uh, a vital character as any person speaking on screen. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and that usually gets the mm-hmm, nice kind of thing. So uh, it was very obvious that I had to prove that that was the case. So rather than doing a, a strict proof of concept or like a smaller version of the feature, I wrote a short called The Die that captures the moment in a child's life when they realize there's such a thing as subtext. Mm. And that, uh, and, and it's basically the moment you eat from the, from the tree of knowledge and, and uh, you no longer can take things at face value when people tell you things. So it's set in 1978 
Yeah, it takes place in the inland northwest. We're shooting in Lewiston, Idaho, and Moscow, uh, Idaho. And I ran a Kickstarter to fund it because no one's going to pay for this in terms of a studio. Yeah, it's a short sure. film, and it's, and it's weird and arty. I mean, why the hell would we do that? So I ran a Kickstarter. The Kickstarter was successful. That was in February of 2020, and we were going to shoot the last week of March 2020, beginning of April 2020. And by the second week of March, we were looking at the COVID numbers that were erupting in Washington and in Idaho, and no one really knew what that meant other than it wasn't good. Yeah, at that time, we didn't have any idea of like what the impact would be in terms of health or how bad it could be for someone or anything. But because this is an independent film and because the, the responsibility for it drops on me as both producer and writer and director, um, I talked with the cinematographer and said, hey, I think we should maybe postpone this to summer. And, and she agreed that that was probably the safer and smarter thing to do. Um, and she stayed committed to the project, which I will be eternally grateful for. And then, you know, a year and a half went by. So technically we are shooting in the summer. We didn't say which summer. So there's that. <laughs> hey, there you go. So yeah. So when the, when the vaccine started rolling out, because we are shooting with children, they can't be vaccinated. Mm -hmm. And so it was really critical that we determine a COVID safety protocol, especially with the Delta variant surging, that would ensure that they were as safe as humanly possible. So we've put all of that into place and, and we've been in pre-production for the last three weeks. I am going up to Washington and Idaho next Wednesday. Uh, and then the week after that, we start shooting the environmental scenes and we have five days of shooting and uh, I think we're making magic. I mean, it, it, it's gone. I, I will say the, the positive thing because, you know, all things happen for a reason, blah, blah, blah. But um, this is a much better film because of the delay. Really? It, it is a much more, uh, I think, artistic and much more thoughtful film. Uh, you know, for a film that is all about subtext, there's a lot more subtext to the planning of the shot. Now, in some cases to a ridiculous level, but it's one of those films that the, the intention is that it's incredibly compelling and attractive and involving from the opening shot mm -hmm. through the end of the 10 minutes for anyone who's watching it. Mm -hmm. But that from a art school, film school standpoint, that they could like break down every shot and like, oh, there's actual purpose and meaning to every composition, every bit of light, every bit of color, like all of this has, has been thought to through to a ridiculous uh, level. And I'm feeling very positive about it today. I love it. But I've had sleep last night, so. <laughs> how, how can our audience support you? Are you? Do you have a distribution plan? Or, like, or is there a place that we can, like, hashtag things? Like, what? how can our audience support you? No, we're just, the intention for the film is to do the festival circuit. Um, those Kickstarter backers will get links to it. And then if all goes right, this time next year, I'll be shooting the feature. Oh, right there. We're, so we'll see. We're sending out good energy for that. We'd love to see that. If anyone wants to support my day job from an art standpoint, I am senior editor at Z2 Comics. We specialize in music-related graphic novels. Uh, recently, we just shipped the Ronnie James Dio Holy Diver graphic novel that I edited with Steve Niles writing it, Scott Hampton painting it. And I am also editing the announced uh, Blondie graphic novel that we are <gasps> doing and Joan Jett's. Ah. And if you go to Z, as in zebra, to comics.com, uh, you can 
pre-order a whole plethora of comics that are the official authorized graphic novels for different bands across a wide variety of musical genres and styles. I love this. I'm looking at it right now. This is incredible. Support Rants by going to Z2Comics.com. Where can they follow you online? In- Instagram is, is Rants, H-R-E-N-T-Z-H. And what about your Twitter? It is Mystery Creative. But of course, that can't be spelled how it sounds. So it is the word mystery, and then C-R, the number 8, T, V is in Victor, and the letter E is in Egg. Mystery Creative on Twitter, RanceH on Instagram. Something tells me, though, that our listeners are probably already following you. But if you're not, go do it now and head over to Z2 Comics, support Rance's art and his work, and we'll all be there, hopefully, at some festival soon to see your short film and then also at another festival to see your feature. So thanks again, Rance. Thanks very much. You have a good one. This is Jethro Tull with Their Flying Dutchman. Welcome to the lounge, David. I'm happy to be here. Have a seat on my rocket chaise, David. Hmm. The lounge is the sky. What would a Flying Dutchman cocktail be? Just whiskey. <laughs> okay. All my cocktails are whiskey. I had a pineapple mojito yesterday. It was delicious. It was a welcoming to the summer. Yeah. Did you feel like you were on vacation? Mm-hmm. Que tropical. Mm-hmm. We are here to discuss the live evolution of Flying Dutchman by Tori Amos. This song has been performed a total of 77 times by Tori in her career to date prior to the new tour that we just heard about. No, all these stats are going to become obsolete. The shows have to become fluid, like like wood. Like wood and dynamic. Fluid. We'll just add in. We'll just keep adding. But as with any song in the Little Earthquakes era, we can't be sure of the entire stats because we've lost a lot of set lists in 92. We've lost a lot of set lists from 94. So we can't really know for sure Mm -hmm. exactly how many times she's performed the song. But what we have on record and surviving is 77 total performances. 
So we can probably guess that she's played it at least 100 times. I don't know about that. Do you think? I think for as few set lists as have survived from 92 and we have seven performances confirmed, that that's not a stretch to add 23 more over the course of that tour. And some of Under the Pink is also lost. So that's true. All right. Well, that's a bold statement. I'm feeling bold today. You are bold. I would have said maybe 10 more because as we'll explore, in 1996, she did the song 17 times. In 1994, she did the song 17 times. And we have most of the 96 set list. So I feel like it's pretty even. But there are fewer songs in 94. So that's true. So let's start at the top. In 1992, the very first time we have on record that she performed the song was on June 7th, 1992 in Frankfurt with an improv that we've dubbed the New Shoes Improv. Roll it, Oliver. love the new shoes improv me too actually do i love it i really do i would have dubbed it the magic beans improv oh yeah but new shoes are cute too yeah but what i like about this introduction to flying dutchman that we have is that it's the first song on the set and she'll often do that like the song appears as the first song a lot of times Mm -hmm. it's a really great show opener and in fact the next night on june 8th in hamburg she opened the show again i want to play the beginning and i want to play the end
why don't we play this one from June 12th, 1992, where she opened a radio show with it. And so it's crystal clear. But here's what she says at the end. because those who can't make it through that need to leave. That's all I have to say. That's all I have to say. But what about, no, that's all I have to say. That's my final statement on the matter. I love that she's trying to alienate her fans from the jump. (laughs) Yeah, if you can't stick around for seven minutes. Yes, if you can't sit through seven minutes, then get out of my show. She throws her shoe. Her new shoe. Her new shoe. November 9th, 1992, she performed this in New Haven, Connecticut, and I believe this was one of my first bootlegs. This was not my first bootleg from the 92 era, but it was one of my first. Um, And she says, this is for the guy who hitchhiked all the way from Colorado, and someone screams, yay, Jason! This is for the guy that hitchhiked all the way from Colorado. Yay, Jason! Yay, Jason! Woo! Let's get outside. I don't know. On the 1994 Under the Pink Tour, Tori performed this song at least 17 times. That's what we have surviving on record through bootlegs and set lists. And the first time we have is February 24th, 1994 in Newcastle. And what I like about the 94 era Tori is that you could shout out a song and she would just jump into it, as is the case here. Here's a little improv she did March 21st, 1994 in San Francisco. 
The 94 tour also brought us the first time that Tori said, I'm in Amsterdam. I got to do this song. Mm-hmm. This is April 7th, 1994. I have to play this in this country. November 8th, 1994, in Montreal, she paired the song with a classic tune, Old MacDonald Had a Farm. Why? Maybe like a Midwesty farm kid asked. From Montreal, Canada? <laughs> yeah, from Montreal, Canada. <laughs> a Midwestern farm kid mm-hmm. asked for Flying Dutchman because his family made him tend to the farm and he couldn't have time to explore his gay identity. Sounds reasonable. I buy it. <laughs> In 1996, Tori must perform this song 17 times, and this is the first time we have on record, March 16th, in Amsterdam. Okay, mind you guys. How are you? Dutch! Yeah! Yes. Okay, so, this is a matinee. Huh? Who's Stefan? What? Schleinen what? This is May 6th, 1996, again in Montreal, and she's just playing her heart out at the end. Great moment from July 21st, 1996 in Portland. Oh, you, and 
I almost skipped over this one, David. August 28th in Buffalo. Uh, and then I listened to it a second time. I was like, oh, I've got to include it. do you think the song is a request often more often than not when she plays it i don't think she plays it because it's a request all i mean like i think she would play it anyway she's probably really proud of it it's an amazing song and it's such a great show opener i think if it's a show opener it's not a request if it's anywhere else it's a request Mm. (laughs) but that's not based on science that's anecdotal september 9th 1996 in boston here's the end of that and it's really great She dedicates this to a guy who died, and I want to just play this uh, a little bit from this version. This was October 29th, 1996. I wrote this letter today um, from somebody who told me about a guy that was supposed to be at one of the recent shows. And uh, he was 18, 
And she told me that he played so many instruments she couldn't even count, and everything he played was magical. And I've known people like that, but they're very few and far between. It's a very special thing. And uh, we found him quite recently um, in a car, and he didn't quite make it. He took his life. So she asked me if I would play one of his favorite songs tonight. I guess what I love so much about tour is that not only are you listening to this amazing music and watching Tori perform, but also she's very accessible to requests and she's very open to requests and very open to how things change in a moment and how you can feel a certain way. And like the fact that she would do this for a person who passed away for his friends, I don't know. It's just really, and really like nail it at the end. She's so great. We like her. Little. On the plug tour in 1998, Tori Amos performed this song a total of four times, and this is what she did in Fort Lauderdale on her birthday, August 22nd. This wasn't the first time she did the background lyrics, as we heard earlier, but this was a request from Shaggy with the background lyrics, and this is the most extensive time. Will you, will you talk a little of that day? I know you were there. Speak to us of the legend. I sure was there. One of the best days of my life, but at the time, it was one of the worst days of my life, and the best. But isn't that how they go? Fleeting. Life is transient. Bye, everybody. Um <laughs> <laughs> 
that was a roller coaster. It sure was. That was the last day, as far as I knew at the time, my last show of that tour. And I had to go back to school and my life. And I was deeply, deeply upset about it and sobbed throughout the entire show. But that was also the day where, as a group, a bunch of us kind of collaborated on a set list and all signed it and submitted it to Tori. And she played it song for song. With one minor alteration, she swapped two songs, I think, like The Order, just to make sure that we know she retains control at all times. Yeah. Um, we were also generous to write in Tori's Choice for one of the songs. Like, you take this one, Tori. <laughs> yeah, I love that you gave her a choice. Yeah, how presumptuous of us, but we totally were. And at that point, we were like, well, why not? Roll the dice, let's see what happens. The worst she can do is say no. Well, it's not the worst she could do, but she could have said no and then punched us all in the face. <laughs> but that's a tradition that's been retained over the tours, is that we all gather together and send her a set list like towards the end of tour once we figure out like what she's into playing. And she's like never really acknowledged it again, right? No, she did the same thing on Scarlet's Walk. Really? Yeah. Mm. You just have to catch her at the right moment when she's tired and doesn't feel like writing her own set list. And she's like, oh, thank God. That's true. So here it is with the background vocals. Thanks to Shaggy on September 26, 1998 in San Diego. And if you listen closely, you're going to hear a little running up that hill. <laughs> Posted to the Dent by Arendal, September 28, 1998. She finally showed up, and I don't know, I just got really sad. I kept thinking, hi, this is it. When she got to David, he hugged her, took another picture, asked about Lucifer, and just told her how much fun he'd had on the whole tour and all that stuff, which kind of choked me up. She got in front of me and started signing things. I'll never forget she was looking down signing a Rolling Stone and while she was looking down said, Hi Aaron, how are you? And I was like, pretty good and you? I'm good. Ha! I said, thank you so much for Alamo the other night. It meant so much to me and it was really beautiful. And I'll never forget her just staring intently into my eyes while I said all that. She was looking just right into my eyes. 
She said, oh, you're very welcome. I'm glad you liked it. Vegas was a lot of fun. And she signed my set list with an actual normal looking heart. During the meet and greet, Jason gave Tori a little realistic dream set that the West Coasters had worked on. And we didn't think she'd give it much thought. Well, this was what our dream set list was. Precious, Amsterdam, Black Dove, Sneeze, IIE, Diamonds, Mother, Dutchman, Purple People, Tori's Choice, Lucifer, Waitress, First Encore, Cocaine and Swirl, Second Encore, Hotel and Sister Janet. Now go read the actual set list. Uh Uh-huh. On to the show. Flying Dutchman was beautiful. When she started the familiar notes, we all went wild and started screaming. We were so afraid she wouldn't do it. She was so into it. I don't think she saw Jason, so she looked off into space with this huge grin on her face. It was really long. She did the background vocals for him. All I remember was Hide Your Head, and she did some running up that hill in it. Totally wonderful. Thank you, Tori. Thank you, awesome crew members, for taking the time to smile at me. Thank you, band members, for waving little hellos. Thank you, fans, for being assholes. Thank you, fans, for being wonderful. Thank you for every little element of every show. I had the fucking time of my life. In 1999, she performed it one time in Denver on December 9th at the KBCO Benefit Concert, but that is the only bootleg that we do not have from the 99 era. Isn't that unfortunate? Mm, She's gone missing. Are you still out there? Are you still out there? She's just wandering around Denver. Does anyone know where my mom is? Strange. So strange. Here's the ending from the first time she performed it in 2001. This is Charlotte, North Carolina, October 4th, and I love this whole end part. This is 16th of November, 2001, in Los Angeles, California. Were you there? I sure was. I know.
There was a heavy flight theme that show, if I remember correctly. I think she did Not the Red Baron, Flying Dutchman, Daniel. In 2002-2003, on Scarlet's Walk, Tori Amos only performed this song one time, and it was at the end of the second leg, and it was a moment. Let me tell you, it was a moment. This is New Orleans, Louisiana, on April 29, One of my favorite shows of all time. Yeah, definitely a request. I think it was Shaggy's request again. Or maybe it was John's. It was actually, maybe it was John's. She only performed it one time in 2005 on the Summer of Sin tour on September 11th in Concord. And there was such controversy. Do you recall the controversy surrounding this request? I do not. Well, there were two people who we know... This is how it goes on Tory tour, and this is why I try to stay out of the drama, but except for now, because I'm going to perpetuate it by telling you about it. Two people on tour, one seasoned professional, regular, you might say, who shall remain nameless, requesting this song the whole tour. This person was requesting this song the whole tour. Character B, non-regular, only did a few shows, kind of an asshole, requested this song that one day Tory plays the song that night. Ugh. Who owns that song? Well, Tory owns that song. <laughs> but who can take ownership of that request? This is the conundrum. This is the tour conundrum, and we're going to settle it right now. Who owns that request? The person who requested it all tour or that one person who came that one show and requested it? I think it belongs to the person who worked on it all tour. Okay. Well, as per usual, yeah. I'll take the opposing side. <laughs> really? Point, counterpoint. Well, come on. The person requested it, and she played it that night after the other person requested the whole tour. Look no further. Yeah, the person had been requesting all tour, so she'd been working it up. The Tory giveth and the Tory taketh away. The Tory giveth and don't telleth us, Sith, who it's foreth. That's almost as heartbreaking as when you request something and then she plays it at the first show where you're not there in attendance. Yeah, no, it is as heartbreaking. Let me tell you, if I requested Hotel 2005, which I did, every freaking meet and greet that I went to, and she said it was going to take some time to work up, and then on the night that she played it, if someone else had requested it, would you say it was for them? Yes. What? <laughs> A two brute? E two. If two. If two brute? Mm. It didn't take her time to work it up. You gave her a storyboard. That's true. You worked it up for her. I did all the work.
Can we just make sure we need to address and we need to explore all possibilities? Do we know for a fact that the song is about the story of the Flying Dutchman? But could it also be a reference to the ski run Jack Tripper goes down when he's trying to impress his girlfriend but doesn't want to tell her that he can't ski and he goes for the double black diamond run, the Flying Dutchman? Remember that? No. Okay. I don't think that that's what it's based on. And I don't think, I mean, I think it's loosely based on the Flying Dutchman story, but I think it's really a testament to Rance. I think it's about Rance. Like, there's a lot about Rance in there. Okay. So it's about this person. However, that's a good theory, David. We'll explore it in part two of Flying Dutchman. Great. In a rare part two, we explore the works of Three's Company. Mommy, kiss me goodbye. Mommy, why does David think that if you request it one time, you own that request? <laughs> Mommy, why is this Dutchman flying? On the American Doll Posse World Tour, Tori performed this song only twice, and here's June 3rd in Amsterdam during a Pip show, not performed by Pip. Can you imagine? You think you, you can, can fly. fly? I love that we're both able to embody Pip. Almost to the degree that Tori is. We can rewrite the lyrics as Pip. Yeah, at a moment's notice. But we have to play the game. What doll, if it belonged to a doll who wasn't Tori, would perform Flying Dutchman? Clyde. Exactly. There's always a right answer. Clyde. I feel like it's never really Isabel. There's always a right answer, and it's rarely Isabel. Maybe when we get to Sweet Dreams. (laughs) Well, but she gave us that answer. Oh, yeah. On the Sinful Attraction Tour, which was sinful and also attractive, Tori performed this song four times, all solo, twice in Australia, and it serves to note that on October 7th in Berlin, we're not going to play it, but she did skip the Keep the Boys Spinning Bridge. Aww. (laughs) And the 2010 summer tour, Tori performed this song one time as an opener, and here it is in, guess where? Guess where? The Netherlands. The Netherlands. Ding, ding, ding. The Netherlands! October 8th, 2010, Tori Amos performed for the first time ever with a full orchestra, the Metropole Orchestra, and she did play Flying Dutchman that night, and here it is. I met this little Dutch boy recently. He was about four years old, and he said to me, in a perfect British accent, of course, because he's being trained that way by one of his parents, and he said, um, 
Tony, you're going to play with the orchestra. And I said, that's true. I am. And he said, no, Tony, you don't understand. You're playing with the big, big, big instruments. They're bigger than demons. And I thought, wow, I never thought of it that way. And he said, when I grow up to be a big boy, my daddy's going to take you. He said, I'm going to come and see you, daddy's going to take me. And I thought, this kid should be running the Dutch government. <laughs> Look at the boys spinning in their own little world. Ooh, yes. Ooh, yes. Tie them up. Silly ones. Perform the song at all on the Night of Hunters tour. Which, that is shocking. Yeah, it really was shocking, right? You thought it would come out. It's shocking to not have it played solo, but with a quartet? Come on, it's a gimme. And by that I mean gimme it. Gimme! In 2012, though, on the Gold Dust tour, it opened five shows, and it was a very prominent placement with the whole orchestra. And here's Rotterdam on October 1st, 2012. <laughs>
Apparently I'm wrong, but my memory is slash was that it opened every show on the Gold Dust Tour. It did open every show, and there were only five orchestra shows. Is that true? No. That's true. Yes. There was Rotterdam on October 1st, Brussels on October 2nd, Royal Albert Hall in London on October 3rd. Then she did a octet on October 5th in New York. Yeah. She opened with Leather. Yeah, that was just the octet, though. Then there was the Infinity Hall taping, and then the New York Radio City performance. And then she went back to Warsaw to do another orchestra show, and it opened there. And Berlin at the Philharmonie with the Metropole Orchestra, and it opened that last one of the year. I thought the orchestra tour was much more extensive. Not much, but more than five. It's because the quartet was in there, so then there was an octet. She got wild. She got wild. Lots of tets. It was a tete-a-tete. Lots of tets. In 2014, on the Unrepentant Geraldine's tour, Tori performed this four times. What do you think about that? She wasn't going to apologize for it. This is a really great moment from July 24th in San Diego. Rance was in the house. She plays it for him and also does a little talking about the dolls right before. So, how's the coming, huh? How great is that? That's why um, somebody asked me to dress up like somebody and I said, You're 50. No, 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 not just that. Santa could have done that. Maybe Pip could have done that. But I wore my glasses for you, you know, eyes fast. And I love you. Did you get your butt here? I love you, baby brother. on the Native Invader tour, Tori performed this song five times, and I had the privilege and honor of being able to watch her perform the song three times on the last tour, and it was so beautiful. I love this song. I love her performances of the song, and here is the last time she performed it to date. This is November 4th, 2017 in Upper Darby. Do you think we'll see this again in the next tour? I do. Me too. 
<laughs> it's never really disappeared from her sets. Except for on the Night of Hunters tour and a lot of pianos well, yeah. tour when she had so many pianos and she didn't play it on a single one of them. Well, it's just a song that takes a lot of vocal energy, but she's always been able to pull it out throughout her entire career. It's mm-hmm. such a great song. I think we'll see it again. And many times. But you know what we won't see again? Tell me. This rocket chaise. We're leaving the lounge. Oh, man. Get off my rocket chaise. Mm, we took a trip. Now get out. Get out of my show and off my rocket chaise. Get out. The sea might be the sky, but we still have rules in there. Get your feet off the furniture. We hope you've enjoyed your visit to the AMOS Live Lounge. Goodbye. Well, we did it. Another trip over. <sighs> How are you acclimating to life on planet Earth after spending so much time on a boat in space? Earth is ghetto. <laughs> I want to leave. <laughs> you know that song? That's been the case for years. No. What song is that? Earth is ghetto. I want to leave. You know that song? No. Such a good song. How are you acclimating to planet Earth? I, you know what? Don't reject our great mother, the Earth. Because, like any mother, she'll reject you first. <laughs> A great motherfucker. I'm feeling pretty good. I'm feeling good about this Flying Dutchman. This Dutchman I've heard so much about. And I retract my earlier statement. Thematically, this could have been on little earthquakes. And I wouldn't have batted an eye. You wouldn't have even coquettishly batted your eyes? Mm, well, I always do that. Hey, Dutchman. I always do that. Hey, you. I blink them rapidly, and there's, like, scissor sound effects because of my long, luxurious lashes. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think it could have had a home on little earthquakes. And what a different life we'd all have. I oh, bet you would have played it a lot more. I love playing sliding doors. Oh, me too. Where we all put on different wigs. The Flying Dutchman had been yeah, on like, this album, and we flash forward into the future, and, like, suddenly, I'm a brunette. I carry a right. tomahawk. I kept my long hair because I didn't care what anyone else thought. I love rubber. <laughs> if you like what we do, please follow us on our Patreon, patreon.com slash Amos, where we have a ton of additional audio content and more to come. All of our tour all years are up there. All of our bonus episodes are up there. Lots of stuff. So that's patreon.com slash Amos. If you really like us and want to follow us on our social media, that's at Amos across Instagram, Twitter, and yes... Facebook. Thank you. Thank you, Gabies and Navies. Facebook, I've returned. Please book a space on our rocket ship. Tori Noah's Ark. We got room. There's always room. Follow us on all of our socials. You can also email us if you have anything you want to say or want to appear on a future episode, songsoftoriamus at gmail.com. Or you can leave us a voicemail if you want us to play your beautiful voice on our show. And that number is 323-296-9955. You can also go to songsoftoriamus.com to find our newsletter. And we'll start updating it soon because there's so much happening! It's a new era. It's a new dawn. It's a new day. It's very exciting. We're really in the middle of songs that came out 30 years ago calling it a new era. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I know. We just came out of a pandemic and maybe we're entering a bandemic. We don't know. Ooh, a bandemic. What if she calls it the bandemic world tour? If she doesn't, I'm making that onto a shirt right now. You should. The bandemic. The bandemic. Okay, I'm going to. Anyhow, thank you for listening and we'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.
Drive All Night is a production of the Sideways Society. For more information and links to things mentioned in this episode, please visit us online at songsoftoriamis.com.